0: Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frinino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us.
1: This week, we're looking at Billy Joel B-sides and alternate takes. They're songs that either weren't on a proper studio album or songs with
0: more than one officially released version. These songs are great because even if you bought all the official LPs when they came out, you didn't get these tracks. So they're great bonus material for the person who thought they'd heard all things Billy.
1: Back when they came out, and even up through the 90s, you really had to hunt to find a few of these. There was no way to download them and they hadn't appeared on any box sets or
0: compilations yet. Plus, you didn't have fan sites, forums, and sites like Discogs that catalog this information. You know, in fact, I learned about the concept of B-sides through one of Billy's songs. When I was in elementary school, I told a friend I liked Billy Joel, and soon after that, he found a single in his parents' record collection. When we played it, though, I asked him what the song was on the other side. By then, I thought I'd heard every Billy Joel song because I had all the albums. Now, this is like finding a secret in your favorite Nintendo game.
1: So we're starting off by pretending that this is the pre-internet age. and We've tracked down a bunch of 7-inch vinyl records and stitched together the story together ourselves. Looking at the songs this way widens the perspective of Billy's work during his prime years. Yes, they were left off the albums, but they were also written in the same timeframe as all these classic LPs. There's a lot to learn about his songwriting and personality from what he chose to not put on the album.
0: Then after that, we'll go into the covers he recorded in the 90s, the two pop songs he released after A River of Dreams, and finally some rarities and alternate versions of his hits. Today,
1: you can find all of these songs on compilations like the 2005 box set, My Lives, and the collected additional Masters bonus disc from 2011's Complete Albums Collection. But for now, let's start with the songs that you would have never heard unless you bought the 45 of a hit song
0: and then flipped it over. All right, and now we go off page and sound way more natural. Yep, (laughs) for
1: sure. So overall, Billy didn't make a habit of writing extra songs he's commented over the years that he would pretty much fully complete just about enough songs to fill up an album not too many more and definitely not less obviously but it was pretty much when an album came out that was the nine or ten songs that were fully baked and that were done and ready to go into the world there really weren't a whole lot of leftover pieces parts so when you're looking at the b-sides here there really aren't a whole lot of original songs that were released on b-sides at the time Because there were very few songs that were really completed That were serviceable enough to see a B-side release
0: And he's certainly not the only person to write like that But it's certainly not the only way to write I mean, if we were a Springsteen podcast And we were trying to do all the Springsteen B-sides I think we'd be here for about four episodes Oh, absolutely Yeah, like Darkness on the Edge of Town When they remastered that They gave us an entire new album of songs That weren't on the album, you know
1: Yeah, he's Springsteen's very prolific There's a couple different schools of songwriting like that Some people just will write hundreds and hundreds of songs to find 10 that are going to make the album and they'll write so many songs. And then you've got a guy like Billy who is, I feel like the songwriting and the the recording process isn't the easiest for him. So he's going to work to get the best 10 out of him that he can get for that album. You know, that's all right.
0: Yeah, um, you know, he said it in interviews. Uh, I've seen him in uh, some of his masterclasses, not personally, but one time he said, I hate writing, I love having written. Um, He talked about when he met Stevie Wonder, and Stevie Wonder was taught. they were talking songwriting, and Stevie Wonder said, I write a song a day. And Billy makes the point, well... Not all those songs make it on an album. You know, there's a million Stevie Wonder songs that probably suck, and, you know, (laughs) he knew it. He just didn't use those, so it's a different way of doing it. I think Kurt Vonnegut actually said uh, there are two kinds of writers. Shoot, I need to think about this now. He had two names for them, but he said one kind was their one that will obsess over every single word and their first draft is just about perfect. And the other ones will just vomit onto the page and have to go back and do massive amounts of rewriting and editing. And, you know, not one is better than the other, but those are the two different styles. And, different you know, methods. Billy seems to fall into the former.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and like I was saying, as a result, there really wasn't a whole lot of fully realized songs that saw the light of day. Once you got to the My Lives box set, you find a lot of work in progress versions of songs that got kind of uh, cast aside or pulled apart to, you know, have little verses or hooks placed in other songs. But really, there's only a handful of songs that were really fully formed and fully recorded that came out. And the lion's share of them here were in the, uh, you know, between the early and late 80s, even a couple into the early
0: 90s. Going through all these, especially the B-sides, and because a lot of these were kind of either half-baked or songs that Billy kind of started and maybe gave up on or just knew they weren't his greatest material. Mm -hmm. These really show a knack for his ability to write a great B section. And so, you know, what I mean by that is uh, when you think of a song, uh, the form of a song, you know, you have the A section and then you have a B section and then usually the chorus. And if you were to go back to jazz, it would be like an A, A, B, A uh, format. Yeah. so a lot of times in a lot of songs the A section is maybe kinda punchy little riffy things like that the B section is often a little elongated the phrasing is a little longer it's it's a little more melodic things like that um, one example a non Billy example that I usually go to for this is the song Scarlet Begonia's by the Grateful Dead um, you know in that verse it doesn't really have a chorus you can really hear how punchy Jerry's vocals are until he gets to that middle section where it gets long and flowing one of the things i've noticed about billy's songs over the years is he really really writes a great b section every time even if it's not one of my favorite songs or if it's like a song that's even not that great that made it onto an album usually that b section just grabs me in every time now on the good songs the a section and the b section are equally as good but when you get to these b sides these ones that weren't quite ready i think the b sections are just about always great and they stand out that much more and I think you can really hear his knack for writing a great b-section in these b-sides
1: yeah you know you're right uh looking back on some of these singles or these b-sides rather going through them mentally here I I really do think that the b-sections had been my favorites all these years I never really thought of stringing that together with all these b-sides that that was a consistent theme for me personally throughout them.
0: Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you know, I didn't even notice that either until, yeah, you know, I listened to these all in a row. I was yeah. like, man, every single time, do that that second section of the song just grabs you. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, nice good observation. Thank you.
0: So, uh, let's start with the non-album B-sides and uh, like we said, these are the ones that if you bought a single and you flipped it over, there was a song that wasn't on that album. And you know, that's your classic B-side right there. I'd like to start with what I call the holy grail of Billy Joel B-sections to me. That's Elvis Presley Boulevard. <laughs> was the b-side of allentown and was also um the song that my friend had on vinyl on 45 Mm -hmm. that when we flipped it over i said what's this song and he explained this concept to me
1: i remember seeing this 45 in a record store when i was a kid by then i was pretty well versed with a lot of the songs but it was the same thing i i remember seeing you know allentown and then bw elvis presley boulevard and i was puzzled too i This was my first concept of, wait, they would release other songs that weren't on the album. This was a brand new concept to me. I didn't realize that that was something that was done. And, you know, over the years had learned that, well, that's that was a very common B-side tactic was, you know, push out an unreleased song as a B-side to a hit single.
0: I also really think it's one of his best Mm -hmm. songs that was on a B-side that wasn't on an album. It's definitely the most realized, I think, out of the ones we have on our list today. It's idiosyncratic, where the others, uh, where the other B-sides are a little more formulaic, where you feel like he was just getting warmed up for an album, maybe, and, and blasted off one that just sounded like someone else a lot. Thematically, it sort of fits uh, The Nylon Curtain. Mm-hmm. Musically, it doesn't. It's got, um, you know, the riff in it just sounds like it's off The Stranger, which was, you know, four albums prior at that point, you know, if you count. Nylon Curtain.
1: Yeah, the, the guitar the guitar work especially harkens more back to this Stranger album, which is kind of funny because Russell and David Brown didn't play on the Stranger album. But stylistically, I think musically it does fit there, but lyrically, you're right. It does, you know, have a bit of a theme of kind of like saying goodbye to an American era. There's a lot of that going on through the nylon curtain thematically. You know, yeah. you have Allentown, for example, is the fall of the steel industry, and there's just a lot of that reminiscent but the old times are over. And I, I think lyrically it does fit better.
0: One aspect of this that is pretty uh, common uh, and almost unique to Billy is that that hapless, unhip character that he often lives in. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, this is the guy that wrote on the inside uh, liner notes for Songs in the Attic that I went to Woodstock, it sucked. You know, right. <laughs> like, this is the <laughs> pinnacle of awesome culture. And he's like, this ain't for me. You know, yeah, it's just got that, you know, man, I was beat, I was driven by the heat. Like you can see him just wandering around beale street wandering around wherever wherever else just uh you know not feeling it and feeling out of place it's got that you know really unhip kind of wandering around trying to make sense of things vibe yeah you hear that pop up a lot in his songs too
1: yeah that's definitely a theme that does pop up from time to time especially in elvis presley boulevard you can definitely picture that yeah So this next one we've got here is actually only found on the 12-inch single for Tell Her About It. And it's uh, the Sam and Dave cover, You've Got Me Humming. And what I found fascinating is this was a song that the Hassles used to play as well. And so the fact that this also transitioned into the Billy Joel Band for a live cover was pretty interesting. This came out, yeah, the 12-inch single for Tell Her About It. And if memory serves, it was actually
0: recorded during the series of recordings that became Songs in the Attic. Right, it's a fun song. It's some blue-eyed soul, uh, like Billy used to do with the Hassles in the late 60s. Uh, It's also got that real tight yell that I think he uh, really dialed in by the early 80s, and I think you really heard it in the mid-80s. He could really just just do that real controlled growl kind of thing, and you really hear it starting to come out on this one.
1: He was um, really in fine form vocally during this era. There was still a bit of a youngness in his voice, but he was starting to widen his range, so to speak. He was starting to get a little bit more guttural while still mm-hmm. maintaining some of those high notes that he was so known for in the 70s and into the early 80s. Yeah, yeah. So after that, we've got I'll Cry Instead, which was also a B-side for the Innocent Man album. This was actually the B-side of the Innocent Man single. And um, this, as most people know, is a Beatles song. I got every reason on earth to be mad Cause I just... I was familiar with the Beatles, thanks to my mother. Um, So I knew quite a few of their songs, but at the time, I really didn't know this song. So the first time really getting familiar with it was listening to this 45 here. And Mm -hmm. the only reason I knew it was a Beatles song out of the gate was the songwriting credits being Lennon and McCartney.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost ironic because An Innocent Man was such a tribute to pre-Beatles rock and roll. And then Mm -hmm. (laughs) the B side of it is a Beatles song, you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I I think where this kind of came from too is this was also part of the songs in the attic sessions if you will and Mm -hmm. this was like one of the club shows you know so if you're thinking like Sparks or something like that where like Everybody Loves You Now Los Angelinos and like songs like that were recorded in the smaller clubs this kind of came from one of those club dates as well the band is just so tight and you can tell they're all Beatles fans obviously and they're Mm -hmm. it's such a short little two minute in and out but they're having so (laughs) much fun and just rocking it out with this. Song.
0: Yeah, those uh those club dates they're really cool if if anybody gets a hold of the uh, songs in the attic outtakes they're out there. Yeah. And they're so fun to listen to and um I guess just a quick, you know, break off into that. You know, it was years and years before I saw the videos for um You're My Home and uh and Sig About About Hollywood yeah. that were, you know, from those and and oh man, it just looks so cozy. Like could you imagine, you know, s- seeing Billy Joel in a club that small after he had hit it big too. Like that's yep. the wild part. I've met people who've told me about man, Billy Joel came to my college. Man, yeah. Billy Joel came to this tiny theater near me, but that was, you know, Cold Spring Harbor piano. Man, sure. you know, these guys got to see him walk through the crowd and just sit down with, yeah. the, with the ashtray on the piano. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, you got a picture, like you said, this was eighty eighty one, so this yeah. was
1: during the Glass Houses tour. So these guys, you know, the regular venue by this time was the arenas, and for them to just decide to do some of these club dates just for fun and to get a different vibe for some of these songs, I, I think it's it's kind of a toss up for me if I could transport myself back to any Billy Joel tour run or era I think it would be either these the songs in the attic time like specifically these club shows or Uh like you've got the Nylon Curtain Live from Long Island era those two to me are just so fun and the band was so good at this point I would have loved to have been able to see it live
0: yeah that would have been amazing at least we have YouTube now thank (laughs) goodness for YouTube (laughs) yeah right so uh, let's jump ahead to Stormfront The B-side from this album was House of Blue Light. Yeah,
1: this was the B-side for uh, We Didn't Start the Fire, uh, which was the first single from Stormfront. I think it may have came out just a little bit before the album mm-hmm. on the cassette. And this was the first album that saw the cassette single as well. So you had this came out on 7-inch 45 and cassette single. Yeah, it's this is an interesting song. It's a very kind of bluesy rock kind of thing. And it just definitely, um, I, I feel like it's something that Billy was having fun with. I get the impression that this is the kind of band Billy would have wanted to play in, just like the bar blues band.
0: Yeah, um, you know, a couple of years, well, probably about five, six years ago now, Vulture.com or Vulture Magazine uh, ranked every single Billy Joel song. They put mm-hmm. this one way, way down in the, in the lower third of them all and said uh, it was bar band, blues, not much more. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they're not wrong. That's what it is. But, you yeah. know, what, they're, what they missed on that was th- the song's about a bar. Like, yeah, yeah he's going to write it to sound like a bar. You know, Billy never wrote any real or at least never published any like straight ahead uh, 12 bar blues rock songs so right you know, the fact that he did in this case you know it was really more about the setting and the concept than, yeah. oh man let me just crank out one of these kind of things yeah you know it does sound a little like a beer commercial um <laughs> it reminds me a lot of uh eric clapton's journeyman album that my dad had and he used to play that a lot and that was like a late 80s era Clapton and, yeah you know had yeah. that real polished blues sound a Big, little bigger production yeah mm-hmm. yeah exactly the bigger productions what what really made it uh mm-hmm. gave it that sound it also appeared on something called the Chevrolet legends compilation out in Europe I haven't been able to find the exact one but if you find this song online uh on YouTube again the uh the the description is I believe in German and mm-hmm. it says something about it being Chevrolet Vi- legends volume one it might be on volume two though because I, I looked up and found volume one on Amazon Okay. And it wasn't. It wasn't on there. It wasn't on that one. I guess it must have been another one. Yeah
1: this song too it starts which is I think the only instance of a Billy record it starts with guitar feedback um, <laughs> you know which is, if any musicians if you played a, a club or a bar getting a good set you oh, know yeah. that goes hand in hand with playing a club um, but <laughs> the Stormfront album was the first album that he did since um, The Bridge and this was the first album since The Stranger that he didn't work with Phil Ramone yeah. and the producer on this album was Mick Jones from Foreigner mm-hmm. and and he really, the, the Stormfront album in general is a very guitar-centric album. The guitars are yeah. very present and very rocking on this album. And I love, like, Russell Javers, David Brown are two of my favorite guitar players. But Stormfront really added a, a big rock element to Billy's sound. And possibly Blue Light is another very guitar-driven song as well. But it really falls in line um, with a lot of the guitar work that was going on on the album.
0: Yeah, that's a good observation um, to draw a line from from where he's... may have started with uh, House of Blue Light and ended up with something like I Go To Extremes which is Mm kind of riffy definitely a big late 80s guitar sound Mm -hmm. that uh, didn't didn't get too cheesy didn't get too uh, over the top but is definitely prominent yeah 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 and from there, we go to River of Dreams. The B side there is You Picked a Real Bad Time. It's the B side of All About Soul. And man, this is an odd song. It's, it's, it's not idiosyncratic like you might call a Tom Waits song idiosyncratic, but it's just it's, something weird about it. You can't really pigeonhole it. It's not mm-hmm. a rocker. It's not like it's folky. It's not bluesy. It's not Tin Pan Alley. No. It's got some weird, you know, kind of, I don't want to say proto grunge, but definitely a proto alt rock sort of.
1: Yeah. Strip with down, the verses move around is is something that I've never heard out of a song of his before it's just the feel of it's very different I am
0: got that muted i don't want to write a riff feel that that we heard a lot in the 90s where they were trying to avoid a hook but still snuck one in there
1: right right this song was actually um part of the the famed Shelter Island sessions. So wow. I don't know if you all know, but uh, when Billy was starting to do the River of Dreams album, the original concept was to basically build a recording studio in a lobster shed out on the east end of Long Island, have it really raw, really remote, mm-hmm. and just bring Billy's core band out with him and cut these tracks raw. And then you had Danny Korchmar in her, and he hated it, <laughs> <laughs> wanted to use his <laughs> own musicians, his own big studios, the whole nine. And so those sessions largely got scrapped Now, the only thing that has ever gotten officially released was Shades of Grey is the one song that made the album that is from the Shelter Island sessions. And then you have this one, You Picked a Real Bad Time, which was also a part of those sessions as well.
0: You know, I didn't realize Shades of Grey was was from Shelter Island. It it fit pretty well on the album. You didn't get that sense. Maybe Mm -hmm. it was in the mastering, but... Yeah, you know what it is about You Picked a Real Bad Time, though? I'll tell you what, man. This is... As I was going through and listening to these That that idea of how well he writes B sections and how apparent yes. it is On these outtakes Man, this is the one that drives it home The A part, you know, the verse is just kind of It's just there, it's just kind of hanging around But man, dude, that second part Of that song is so good It's yep. like a perfect Billy meets the Beatles thing It's like, sounds like Billy Then it yep. sounds like the Beatles Then yes. it sounds like Billy again you're like, oh man, he's doing a big Beatles thing there
1: the verses of the choruses aren't horrible but the payoff the B section is so good that yeah. it makes up for the first two parts not being <laughs> what they could
0: say the truth when they say I want to, but I don't want to use the word middling. I feel like it's it's a little harsh, but it's just like... It's all just there, and he kicks this awesome B section, man. And, you know, when we did Cold Spring Harbor, we were talking about, you know, going back through those demos and those old songs and finding where he excised just that one little part, you know, for for a song later. Like, there's a snippet of Piano Man and this and that. I'm I'm really surprised that nothing from uh, You Picked A Real Bad Time made it onto that album. Um, Somebody uh, described... I forget who might have been in a forum somewhere someone pointed out that there's a late Beatles like psychedelic Beatles era influence mm-hmm. on Great Wall of China and I, I don't really hear it all the time but sometimes I do Um, just just a little something about the the orchestration and things like that you know funny real quick though that you when you mentioning the orchestration those strings
1: really to me makes me think of Beatles by way of the nylon curtain like I hear like the Scandinavian skies crazy strings going on and so to me that's the bridge no pun intended (laughs) <laughs> so, like, it doesn't directly make me feel Beatles, but when I hear the string section on, on that song, it makes me think of the Nylon Curtain, which in tune
0: makes me think of the Beatles. Right. That's interesting. Huh. Yeah. Now I've got to go back and listen to the Nylon Curtain. Like, like you're twisting my arm on it, but yeah. Connecting you to, the dots. go Back and A B those, yeah. Put them in sequence. That'll be fun. So, as far as we can find, um, those are all the the B-sides. You know, those are all the non-album tracks that you'll find on a piece of wax with an album track on the other side. Mm -hmm. The next uh, section we want to get into is songs Billy did for other projects. Um, These started in the 80s. He did a couple, actually, uh, songs for kids. And then in the 90s, he did a series of cover songs for various soundtracks and, and other projects like that. So the first one that we were able to track down was back
1: in 1981, and that was Nobody Knows But Me. This Mm -hmm. was on a compilation album called In Harmony 2, which was a children's, I believe, charity album by the Children's Television Workshop, which was the parent company that produced Sesame Street.
0: Yeah, it was um, it's a it's a funny little song. It's uh, it's about a kid with an imaginary friend. And I'll say I'll say this, you know, even when Billy's writing for kids, man, Billy's still writing a Billy Joel song. Yeah, you really you really hear like a, a little theme of alienation in this thing, where like kind of nobody understands him and he's doing his own thing. Yeah. Um, when I was listening to it, uh, I I decided that this is the uh, this is the kids version of Half Mile Away right okay so yeah. you know when i first <laughs> yeah when i first heard 52nd street you know i was a kid so everything sure. you picture is 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 you you know so you know in in half a mile away it's wait for mama to turn out the lights crawl on the roof and then i hit the night well like i'm picturing me in my footie pajamas in brooklyn you know <laughs> like trying to get out onto the porch <laughs> yeah um and and you know so it's just this this same kind of you know sort of theme of like i got another world going on i have something you guys don't know about interesting yeah, um, it's funny though, man, uh, the, the site One Final Serenade does point out where he comes off with like a line that's sort of creepy. So uh, about halfway through the song, he goes, I always go to sleep when my daddy says I kiss him and turn out the light. But my friend is sitting on the edge of the bed talking to me every night. And it's like uh, oh, that's a little like kind of six cents or something. You know? Yeah, I see dead people. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, right. Yeah, I see dead people. It reminds me of Ralph in The Simpsons. That's where I see the leprechaun. He tells yes. me to burn things. Yes, you know? totally.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. It's a fun
0: sounding song though overall.
1: Honestly though, one of my favorite parts of it is the intro where the band just goes round and round doing the one two count off (laughs) (laughs) like that to me set the tone for how loose they were out of the gate they're just having fun with it and not taking it you know taking the recording seriously but they're, they're just keeping super loose and super fun with it and you just hear it right out of the gate with them just kind of laughing through the count off One two one two one two one two.
0: Yeah, that's, you know, they always say about Sesame Street and the Muppets, um, you know, they they split the humor between something for the kids and something for the adults, you know, even within one joke. And, you know, it seems to me like if you're a kid, you hear one, two, one, two, and they're just funny voices. But, you know, if you're a parent, you've heard like how many songs that start off and sometimes a little contrived with the one, two, three, four, like the parents will get that joke. Sort of thing. So the the In
1: Harmony Two, I don't know how well it did uh, or anything like that. It, it came out on Columbia Records, so at record company, so it was an easy easy thing there. But a just quick note about this In Harmony Two record. Um, probably the most notable song on it was Bruce Springsteen's version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town, which became one of his legendary cuts. Yeah, um, that you hear all the time, all holiday season long. Now
0: was that was that really the first instance? Of- of that i figured that was a b-side or a famous radio recording or something yeah I,
1: I was digging into it a little bit here so this was actually the first time that santa claus is coming to town was released so it got released later speaking of b-sides as a b-side yeah. to my hometown in 85 you know it's been re-released a million times since then yeah. so this was the very first release of it and then bruce didn't release it as a b-side for another four years that's funny wow yeah. i always figured
0: that was just a a, a Springsteen thing. Yeah, me it too. I, I I had
1: no idea until I was. Uh, we were researching this episode, actually. So the next one up of these uh, other projects is for the movie Oliver and Company. Back in 88, this is between the bridge and Stormfront and fresh off the heels of the Russian tour, actually. Billy was approached by Disney to star in voicing um, their next movie, which was a variation on the Oliver Twist story, except the leads were a cat and a dog, and they called it Oliver and Company. They wanted Billy to voice the street smart, gruff and tough dog named Dodger. So Billy is the lead in this movie, and he was the vocalist on this song called uh, why Should I Worry?
0: I wonder if that's how they pitch it to him. Billy, we got the par for you. What's that? Uh, hey, would be a street smart dog named Dodger. Yeah, okay. yeah I'll do it why not yeah you know I almost
1: wonder too if this was kind of another way of Billy connecting with his daughter you know Alexa now is going to be like two years old at this time Mm -hmm. and so she's probably at that age of getting into like Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers and Disney and all that stuff so maybe this was another way to connect to Mm -hmm. Alexa you know because a couple years later you know he was on Sesame Street and did things like that so
0: I wonder if there was a little bit of motivation there to do it that sounds about right I mean it's been documented how writing and recording the bridge was very challenging for him because he wanted to be home so badly you know especially because you you know his dad wasn't around and you know he had a little bit of a rough childhood and he 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 wanted to be really different yeah Yeah. so yeah I mean and you've heard of other celebrities doing that I think uh, it was a funny story about when they did the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie in like 2000 maybe 2000 2001 De Mm Niro uh, played the villain because he thought his kids would like it and then his kids got scared and (laughs) they were confused by him in it and something like that yeah Um, yeah somebody else uh, recently took I can't remember who somebody else took took something because his kid liked it you know little funny stuff like that yeah so that I, makes sense. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that does play into it here
1: one minute I really don't know a whole lot about this song as far as Mm -hmm. the background goes. Um, I know it was produced by Phil Ramone, Mm -hmm. but I honestly don't know who played on it because this was also a time when Billy was going through a big band transition. Production wise, it's really hard to tell if it's, you know, session guys or any of the players that were in his band at the time. I really can't quite figure that out. I do know that he didn't write it. Uh, this was written by Dan Hartman and Charlie Midnight. Um, I know you you probably know a couple of Dan Hartman's hits. Uh, I Can Dream About You. I think that was one of his hits mm-hmm. back in the 80s. Um, so he was a great singer songwriter The two of them wrote this song and if you really Kind of listen to it a little closely it's It's really not a song that Billy would have Written himself so it really does kind of stand Out as not one of his songs so to speak
0: Yeah the role does make sense I mean It was uh, it was such a New York City in the 80s movie man um, mm-hmm. It was such character to that You know, I mean, I remember just the fact that I grew up in Brooklyn and and was in Manhattan and and places like that. You know, as these movies were coming out and as Billy was like, you know, really peaking and and talking a lot and referencing New York, you know, it all it all came together. So, you know, to know that Billy Joel was uh, the streetwise dog in this made a whole lot of sense, you know. Oh, absolutely. uh, You know, I'm always sometimes I'm curious to see if people in other parts of the country um interpreted even a movie like this differently. Like, wow, that's what New York is like. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's where I live. What's the big deal? You know, there's a dog on the corner. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I probably had a bit of that myself, you know, being from Detroit. I honestly, the first time I ever went to New York was six, seven years ago. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I was well into my thirties by the first time I ever made it to New York. Uh, uh-huh. No, actually, I take that back. Back in my the days where I used to tour manage and things like that, I had gone through New York mm-hmm. a handful of times. But this was probably you're looking at probably like 2005. So mm-hmm. even so, I was then I was in my uh, mid twenties at that point. But I think as a kid too, I was I was probably wondering that. I'm like, is this what New York is like?
0: That was <laughs>
1: you know, an early impression of it for sure.
0: Yeah, it's it's not the same now. I mean, you know, for better or worse, but it's definitely. Different, definitely different vibe now. Like, uh, I mean, Ghostbusters is the ultimate like New York in the 80s, and they've even said in the commentary, like, the city was a character, and <laughs> it just yeah. really is. Like, yeah. everything was just like, so pitch perfect, but yeah, so the, yeah, this song doesn't sound like a Billy song, definitely sounds like him singing it. Is certainly in his kind of rock star phase where he's just clearly having fun with this, uh, yeah, why should I worry kind of song. Wasn't he, isn't there like footage of him, like, with the Ray Ban glasses on, like, in the studio, just Yeah, looking all decked out for it. (laughs) Yeah,
1: definitely. Well, I'm not sure if it's like him cutting the vocal, but definitely him voicing the character. And um, there, if you. If you have the DVD or find the DVD uh for Oliver and Company, there's some bonus features on it and some of it is like a making of. And yeah, you uh-huh. you have Billy there in the studio, yeah, Ray-Bans on. Billy already personifies New York, but he's taking it up a level to make it even more <laughs> elaborate than he already is. Um yeah. and then you know, that again, that's like I think with cartoon, you know, you tend to kind of oversell it a little bit anyway to make it a little more noticeable than if it were like a live action type of situation.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, people can't see what your face looks like, so they really got to hear it in your voice. Exactly, exactly. And um, I didn't realize this (laughs) until today, why Should I Worry was
1: actually nominated for a Golden Globe in 1988 for Best Original Song. Uh, it really? didn't win. I'm not sure who won that year, but yeah, I was uh-huh. actually pretty surprised uh, this actually got a Golden Globe nomination.
0: Yeah, I mean, Oliver and Company wasn't, uh you know, wasn't one of uh, Disney's biggest hits. I think at that point, Disney was kind of slipping a little with the cartoon movies. I think, what, what did they bring it back with Little Mermaid? Yeah, Yeah. I
1: think they got their big resurgence in the very early 90s with like Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and and Lion King in 94 was huge. Like they really hit their stride in the 90s, but like the Mm -hmm. mid late 80s, they weren't quite what they became, you know, after that. You're right.
0: Look at us with our Disney trivia. (laughs) (laughs) And now Disney is just unstoppable and everywhere. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. They own The Simpsons now for crying out loud. Yeah. I still won't get Disney plus. Nope. I got, nope. I got my two. I'll go over my cousin's house. And so watch be it. careful. <laughs> they might come
1: after you for that Ralph Wiggum reference.
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> the cease and desist letter is already here. We haven't even edited the episode yet.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: No, man, it's crazy now how they could find stuff. I was saying I was doing the, I was helping some people out with a live stream on Facebook live. They were doing like a telethon just to, to set the audio levels. We went live, um, for a sound check and I just went on YouTube and I grabbed a King Crimson song and it was a live version of it. No less. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right, let me just, let me just pipe this through and make sure all the settings are working. Yeah. I think I got 25 seconds into the song Four people text me that like yo Jack Facebook just took the feed down because You're using
1: copyrighted material It's super quick and it's it's automated Now so they've got these AI things that can just crawl every Video and stream for anything in this Database and it's amazing how quick it is And for you all out there this is a Big reason why that we're not going to upload Our full episodes to Facebook or YouTube or things like that because we do Include a fair amount of Billy's music Albeit very short clips throughout but we feel it really helps kind of contextualize what we're talking about and tell the story a bit, but we would get zapped in two seconds if, <laughs> if these episodes were on Facebook or YouTube. So, you know, that's why the best place to listen is our website, com and all mm-hmm. the other regular podcast outlets. Uh, that's the best place you're going to hear it. But, uh, you know, yeah. only when, um, you know, we do some things here and there where we don't include music. That's pretty much our only opportunity to go, um, do like Facebook live or YouTube or things like that. Mm-hmm. So after Why Should I Worry is another Disney related release. And this kind of goes into an era here. These last couple songs and going forward where Billy started really getting involved in soundtracks and cover songs and things like that. Uh, This next one is a cover of When You Wish Upon a Star. that was on a Disney CD record and cassette called Simply Mad About the Mouse. When you wish upon a star. Makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. And if memory serves, there's also a VHS of it with uh, videos, and I, I believe there is an animated
0: video of this with Billy in it. Hmm. Have to find that now. Check on YouTube or something. I haven't I haven't seen that. So, uh, is it one of those things where it's like he's animated, or is he live action around the animated uh, characters? I haven't watched it in a good twenty
1: years, to be honest. So uh, <laughs> don't kill me if I'm wrong. But something makes me think it kind of goes back and forth or he goes between being like sketched and fully oh, yeah. animated. Uh-huh. My brain is telling me that it's something along those lines where he's kind of going back and forth a little bit. Um, I'm not totally sure. Uh, my wife and I were on vacation in Hawaii a couple of weeks ago. As I do with every trip I go on, I'm like, all right, where's the record store? I got to at least like <laughs> get the vibe of a local record store and check it yeah. out. And I, I kind of wish I would have bought it just for fun. Cause it was only a buck or two, a couple bucks, but I actually uh-huh. saw a cassette copy of, simply mad about the mouse I, mm. I which i haven't seen in forever but they actually had it there oh come on that could have been carry on <laughs> I, I totally could have thrown it in my carry on especially
0: with southwest you get like a million things you can bring on board yeah i know i was in seattle we go to seattle every thanksgiving uh to see my girlfriend's sister i take a walk and i found this record store and they had all these old like original pressing frank zappa albums and it'll, you know between 30 and 50 dollars each and i'm like oh my god i want to buy these so bad but like I will have to take the entire flight hugging them. Like they're not going in any suitcase if I, if I get a hold of them.
1: Yeah. A couple <laughs> of friends of mine, it's funny. Cause the last time I toured like vinyl wasn't even a thing. Yeah. When I, I would go to music stores, it was either like DVDs or CDs, um, which I still mm-hmm. buy, but I wasn't buying records then. But uh, a friend of mine who tours regularly, he, um, he bought like these little mini vinyl road cases to where they could like it fit like 30 records or whatever like that. So it was like, all oh, right, yeah. well, I got room for 30 records I can buy on the road and it's all <laughs> nice and protected and I can get
0: it home with me. But that that's about it. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's pretty cool, though. I gotta yeah, look those up next next time I take a trip out there for sure. And then after that, he did two songs for A Honeymoon in Vegas. He covered two Elvis Presley songs. He did All Shook Up and Heartbreak Hotel.
1: Yeah, those are just kind of fun, loose Elvis songs. This came out in uh, 92. So this was between Stormfront and River of Dreams. And um, you could definitely tell he's hamming up the, uh, the Elvis thing going on. So to hear him do a couple straight up Elvis tunes was interesting. And this came out on Epic Records. So it was, again, another Sony released project. And so, you know, I think maybe this was, you know, when he was kind of starting to not want to, put out music as quickly and so this was probably a way to still get things out there without having to put too much thought into it
0: yeah i mean you know as we all know after river of dreams billy pretty much swore off uh writing pop songs or releasing pop songs at least and you know you know he said a lot about it over the years one time he said well you know the beatles put out 12 albums i put out 12 albums that sounds about right you know there was one where he was uh elton john apparently goads him every so often he should put something out and he's like i don't want to i don't want to dilute my uh yeah my discography with something now i would just want to keep you know keep it to, to what i felt was a strong body of work and yeah i remember you know, i think the
1: line he would say he's like elton's always like why don't you put out more albums and he's like why don't you put out less albums
0: <laughs> <It's> Like, the <laughs> no, gloves are off all right <laughs> Uh, I, f- I feel like if we say it We're gonna like Reignite the feud Or something right. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> It's gonna get back To one of them. Right yeah <laughs> But I gotta say these About Alright first of all There's two things About these two songs Well okay. uh, three Because number one is Damn are they fun Like yes. they did just A good job having fun You know Billy always Loves to talk about Who he's making an impression Of and things like that He does a fantastic Elvis man He doesn't he overdo really does. it nope. Um Yeah but like You were like Yep that's Elvis That's certainly an Elvis thing
1: What's wrong with me? I'm not sure like a man on a tree. My friends say I'm acting queer as a bug. I'm in love. I'm all shook up on. Uh-huh
0: major props to Liberty DeVito on this because he nails that old school rockabilly shuffle. Rockabilly, like, Yeah. And
1: that's how I knew it was Liberty. Like I
0: said, like you really don't
1: know the players on these cover yeah. songs cause it, they weren't on Billy albums, but out of the gate with that intro and then into that shuffle, I'm like, Oh, that's got Liberty mm-hmm. all over it. That feel that's unmistakable in, in my eyes as a drummer. Yeah. Gosh, he, he nails yeah. it on this. You're right.
0: Yeah. So, you know, the thing about rockabilly and I like, a I like a good deal of rockabilly. Um, It's a funny thing because so many of those songs were recorded in even the ones in Sun Studios, you know, uh, Sun Studios was great, probably the best one where they were were recording these songs, but you know, a lot of these studios weren't exactly state-of-the-art, or if they were, state-of-the-art wasn't that great, especially for rock and roll, Right. so like when you listen to like All Shook Up the Original, man, I don't know if that guy's playing a drum or if he's slapping the denim on his knee, man, that's just what it sounds like, Right. you know? And, and sometimes um, what happens with rockabilly is they go one of two ways. Well, all, most often you get these neo-rockabilly guys, and they're cool and all, but, man, they just they just ape the, the instrumentation exactly, but the production is, is sounds slick because it's modern, you know? Sure. And it just okay. doesn't translate the same way. It was just something about, you know, the way they were recorded it clearly a influenced yeah. the way they played. And that, that was it. And you can't go back and try to make it sound like, like those old studios because it's going to be such artifice. Yeah. Um, these two songs really, really expertly walk that line between having an updated, not modern, but updated production value, you know, while still sounding like this was maybe recorded, at least, you know, or, or that these people were rocking and rolling back in the 50s, man. They they nailed the vibe and they used just the right amount of uh, of modern production so it didn't sound cheesy and i have not heard a lot of bands hit that that well really aside from when it came
1: out all shook up was released as a single um Mm -hmm. it didn't do incredibly well but you know it got out there and got some radio airplay you know a lot of these interesting covers just kind of came and went pretty quickly and as a drummer myself that's one it's one thing that I struggle with is the shuffle. You got to really have that feel internalized yeah. because with a shuffle, if it's not right, it's really wrong. Really. Yeah, wrong. It sounds even if even if you're playing the notes like i remember working up a tune with this country band i used to play with and it was kind of a shuffle type song and i was just the notes were there on the page and i'm playing the notes but it it never really fell into place with that song and i just couldn't capture it like i wanted to
0: yeah it's tough it's like uh like johnny cass said like if you didn't pick cotton in a field you don't know country music yeah if you didn't grow up next to railroad tracks you can't really play the train beat you know (laughs) that kind of thing and then, yeah, you know, it's, it's... I grew up on Billy Joel and, you know, my roots are in Motown.
1: So I'm I'm the two and four guy. So it's like, that's <laughs> yeah. that's my sweet spot. Yeah. The guys who can play the shuffle are just, mm, I love it. You know, like I say more modern, but you're going back to the 80s. Like you got, you know, 70s, 80s, like Bernard Purdy and Jeff mm-hmm. Porcaro from Toto. I mean,
0: the guys yeah. who can play it well are just so tasty and so good. Yeah, it's, it's a thing unto itself. What's the, uh, what's the Jeff Beck song? It's like untitled or instrumental. It's just called mm-hmm. something like that. That one's got a nasty shuffle on it. Uh, Oh too. yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but even then I feel like uh, you know, your um seventies studio pro shuffle, like the Steve Gadd shuffle, the, the Jocaro oh, yeah. shuffle, the the Purdy Purdy shuffle even. Yep. You know, it's a it's a different beast and Liberty hits that like old school rock and roll. I'm in the back I'm in the corner of a bar cracking this out kind yep. of shuffle and it. it fits so perfectly in this song, especially. I mean you yeah. hear it a lot in uh it's it's there in um perhaps most predominantly in, in Still Rock and Roll to me where he really hits that but, the, yeah. you know, the, the production isn't as upfront about the drums in that, you know. Sure. Because um, when he breaks into it, it's either the chorus or the sax solo. So it's definitely not right up there. But, uh, yeah, in this one, that's, like, probably the, the good the best case study of it.
1: You mentioned still rock and roll to me really quick and I know we'll talk about it more when we get into that song Glass Houses Down the Road but um, it's a shuffle like you mentioned all the way through except for Liberty's signature fill coming out of one of the uh, bridges or whatever so it's all shuffle into Liberty's big fill where he's going d- down around the rack toms but <laughs> yeah. for that bar it's straight
0: yeah one aina, two a
1: three aina, four a four E-ana, one and then yeah. it goes right back in to the shuffle I always thought that was such an interesting choice to just break out of it for just one fill, and then go right back into the the shuffle
0: groove. Yeah, it's such a simple fill, but man, it's it's all about the placement. That's where that's what makes it pop out of that song. That it didn't uh, swing all the way. Da 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 da. Right, oh, yeah. and and if you saw Billy live anytime between
1: 1980 and 2005 or whatever the time, you know, especially when Liberty was in the band and all that, you just saw 18,000 pairs of hands go up in the air, air <laughs> drumming that fill, and that was oh, you know that was such a, a big part of that song. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: So then after that, he um, he does a song for a league of their own. He does uh, the old classic In a Sentimental Mood, the old uh, American. Ukewin songbook standard. Yep. In a sentimental mood
1: I can see the stars come through my room
0: While I can't remember oh, hearing this in the, in the in the in the in the movie. To be honest with you, I've seen the movie at least twice. I saw it in the theaters. My Billy radar is usually pretty good too. I got to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I
1: have seen it probably half a dozen times since this came out. This came out in 1992 as well. But I honestly couldn't tell you where this is in the flick either. It's a you know it's a nice little somber tune and all that. It's a mm-hmm. it's a nice song, but I couldn't even tell you if it's used for the basis of a scene or if it's just like there's an AM radio going on uh-huh. in the background and it's just tucked away in the in the mix of the movie and you just hear it for a second. Either way, I I honestly couldn't tell you where it is in the movie. But at the same time too, I know mm-hmm. the 90s were the decade of soundtracks you know also there were songs that were on soundtracks that weren't even in the movie so that's Mm -hmm. also a possibility but um if anyone knows you know where this is in the movie let us know because i want to go back and try and find it
0: yeah um and we'll, when we get to all my life, I'll get into this a little more, but mm-hmm. uh, the the thing about this one is is he hadn't really developed a good voice for for doing standards yet. No. Um, you can really hear this song's proximity to River of Dreams. I think a lot of his vocal technique, his vocal delivery is is really closer to that album, which is really one of his more rocking albums, so that kind of took me out of it a little like it just really sounded like Billy Joel. It almost sounds like Billy Joel doing karaoke, like you know, sure. you know, you put on a standard at the bar, and he's just up there kind of singing. He's it, just crooning over really top wrong. of it, just like yeah, yeah having a cocktail. <laughs> just right, like,
1: yeah. <laughs> Musically too, it's like the production of it isn't something you really up to that point had heard out of a Billy Joel song. It was a little jarring for me as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, very stray, very uh, sweet, very uh, orchestrated, and right. And then after uh, that, we
1: uh, jump ahead to the late '90s in 1999 and uh, the Runaway Bride soundtrack, which was um, was it Richard Gere? Maybe I, I I've never even seen the film.
0: Yeah, yeah Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. Okay, Julia that's what Roberts I thought. Being the titular um, Runaway Bride. Because yeah.
1: I, I I I'm picturing the soundtrack cover. Funny enough, uh, and this was uh-huh. Where Were You on Our Wedding Day, which was a, a cover song as well. Do you remember who originally did this one?
0: No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm gonna look it up right now.
0: You you were hoping I could
1: save that one. <laughs> save me, Jack. <laughs> I was casting out a line. Bail me out. And... <laughs> Lloyd Price was the original artist.
0: Yeah, this one uh, it was fun. Um sounds like he's having fun doing it, you know. Um mm-hmm. if in a sentimental mood seemed a little labored, this one sounds like he's just knocking one off and yeah, having a good time with it. This is to me um a very noticeable
1: difference in his voice. Is his voice is deeper and a little ri- and richer than we last heard
0: it. Yeah, that's true if you, if you kind of listen to this stuff chronologically, you'll hear that uh, that evolution start to come through for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah it's funny you talked about the 90s being uh, the the decade of the soundtracks Uh, I think the 90s was also the decade of the way too long movie trailer like I remember being in the movie theaters and the, the the um and I was a teenager too, so we knew everything. Right but uh the preview for this came on and my friend's like, Why are we gonna watch this? You just explained the entire movie to us. You gave us the ending in the <laughs> in the uh You gave it all the way, yeah. Yeah. Not that we were gonna go see it anyway, but man. <laughs> right. That's funny yeah. you mentioned that.
1: And yeah. I think if I remember correctly, when this came out, I was like nineteen or twenty and Billy was six years removed from doing pop records after River of Dreams came out, and at this point I was clam for anything Billy's so even just a cover song here and there was exciting because at this point I think I knew that that was all we were going to get
0: yeah it was getting pretty obvious by then so now we're going into all my life which was recorded in um, 2006 released 2007 valentine's day yeah was it valentine's day february 14th is what I'm
1: finding yeah
0: all
1: my life I've searched this whole world through Try as I might To find someone
0: like you So he wrote it for his uh, then-wife Katie Lee for their second anniversary. You know, earlier when we were talking about uh, in a sentimental mood, and I was like, he really doesn't have the... Uh, the torch singer thing down yet he got it for this one man he did a perfect tony bennett and again like the elvis thing mm-hmm. you know he's doing tony bennett but it's not an impression it's he really he really found the uh, the right voice for for a you know american standards kind of song on this one
1: and i found it interesting that this was the way he kind of came out of original pop song so to speak hibernation i mean there was the fantasies and delusions classical record but i think i was surprised that this was what he was coming out with it just surprised me. I didn't expect, a like, a standard.
0: Yeah, and you know what? It doesn't sound as labored as you think it would. I mean, you know, plenty of uh, rock stars and pop stars from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, tried to make that mature... Mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tackle Tim Pan Alley kind of albums. But, right. you know, just the fact that he wrote it for his wife uh, for their anniversary and, you know, wrote it without any thoughts of it being a single, let alone a hit single or anything like that. Sure. You know, y- you could just tell he had fun with it. You know, it's it was something personal. It was something heartfelt. It was genuine. And you know, I think a lot a of what difference. has to do with how that comes across is who produced it. This was actually produced
1: by Phil Ramone, which was yeah, the, yeah. the first thing he produced of Billy's in 20 years at that point. Right. Um, and this was the last thing that they did together.
0: Ironically, I guess the last one since Oliver and Company, right? Since uh, why should I worry?
1: Yeah, good point. Yeah. So he did Oliver and Company after The Bridge. Yeah. So that was his last song with Billy until this, you know, Phil's background before the pop rock world, you know, Billy and and Karen Carpenter and all that. And, you know, he worked with the likes of Frank Sinatra and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. honestly, this was like right in Phil's wheelhouse. This was kind of taking him back to the roots of what he kind of started his
0: career with. Yeah, that's yeah. it's funny how the pieces all seem to come together on this one. All right, so, so think about this, too. You know, he wrote this um, for his wife, and one of his, technically not one of his earliest hit songs, but one of his earliest songs that became a standard of, of Billy's was She's Got Away, which was written for his first wife, Elizabeth. hmm You know, so, I mean, you know, She's Got Away, I believe didn't really become popular, didn't become a hit until it was on Songs in the Attic. Right. But, you know, it was, it was on Cold Spring Harbor. It was on his first album. Sure. So it's funny that, you know, arguably the first hit song that he wrote and the last hit song and and one of the last ones that he wrote Mm -hmm. and published were both for his wives.
1: Right. That's an interesting point. And this was the first Billy release as well in the digital age. This song actually premiered on Valentine's Day on I think it was People Magazine's uh, website. So that's where it hit first on Valentine's Day. And then I think the following week is when it hit iTunes and Amazon and all everything mm-hmm. like that. And there was actually also a CD single released of it as well. I'm not sure if it was a Walmart exclusive, but I know Walmart had like an expanded version, which had a handful of live songs that were recorded during the, uh, the infamous 12 Gardens run. Oh, really? Yeah, in 2006, huh. the 12 sold out shows that yes. later came out on 12 Gardens Live. But it was a couple songs that uh, didn't make it to the 12 gardens live album that they used as bonus tracks for the single um i know um honesty and stiletto were two of Mm. them and i think there's based on the country there might be like different versions of what the bonus tracks were Uh, but those are two that i'm aware of i think you're my home might have been one and actually this song was a number one single
0: i didn't realize it uh, did that well
1: yeah it hit number one on the uh, billboard hot single sales charts back in 2007 huh
0: yeah, that was you know sadly this came out at, at sort of uh, my low point of Billy Joe fandom. Sure, and you know I kind of heard it once. I was like, eh, whatever, mm-hmm. Billy's done. Sure, you know? and then when I went back and listened to it for this. I was like, that is a nice song, man. And, and you know now I'll you know to put this in perspective, 2007 it came out, and uh, the in the year 2000 I went to go see Tony Bennett and was very excited for it. So it wasn't like I didn't have an ear for these kind of songs. Uh huh. maybe you weren't know, just, were just, just kind for it by. from Billy. Yeah, I wasn't ready for it from Billy. Probably try to listen to it at work real quick and just try to, like, catch a glimpse of it. You know, and was like, all right, okay, whatever. He's doing a standard. I'm not that interested yet. Yeah. But, you know, I think going back and reading the backstory and listening to it again, it's it's just a a damn well-done song, you know? Can't can't say any more or less than that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And I I think I'm
1: kind of in the same boat. I don't think I liked it at first. Like, at first listen, it wasn't up to Billy Joel's standard for me. I felt like it didn't hold its own amongst the Billy Joel canon. Um but I'm not going to say I love it now, but mm-hmm. I I think it's it's grown on me a little bit in the time since.
0: Yeah. Um and and uh, we'll probably credit this to Phil Ramone, like those rockabilly songs I was talking about before. The production is 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 updated, yep. but it's it's not too slick. It's not too greasy with the strings and stuff like that. It doesn't sound cheesy.
1: Yeah, I I agree He It's, you know, and this is exactly what Phil Ramone always did with Billy It was just exactly what the song called for And no more, no less Phil always had a knack for getting the best performance out of Billy Back in the day, the band as well And so he, I think Billy was very comfortable with Phil Always was And yeah. so it was just like trying on your favorite sweatshirt Or your favorite pair of <laughs> shoes or whatever It's like,
0: ah, there's that comfort again Yeah, yeah, definitely I could see that Probably a lot of trust there. You know, Billy may not have let anybody else uh, go so standard over it. Who knows?
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for someone who's been, he had been out of, You know, he hadn't really been recording in a long time. So to do a song like this, that is admittedly super personal for him to bring somebody in who you can trust and be comfortable with out of the gate. I'm glad the two of them got to work together one more time as well. You know, Phil Ramone Mm -hmm. passed away, uh, you know, probably five or five or six years after that. I think it was 2013, maybe. Um, So, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that at least Billy and he got to work together one more time
0: yeah yeah definitely so you know it's um kind of almost a downer to, to leave things in this era but you know so the last uh, billy Joel song that was released was christmas in fallujah was officially released in 2007 height mm-hmm. of the uh, second gulf war this is called, called christmas, christmas in, in fallujah, fallujah. Really weird time in general, man. Um, Again, you know, this isn't the best Billy Joel song in the world, but damned if it didn't really fit at this time. I mean, everything felt lost. Rock and roll music kind of sucked, you know? Everything was, like, kind of down. And um, it's a song, man. It's, you know, it's uh, written in response to letters he'd received from soldiers in Iraq, people that said they found solace, inspiration, comfort in his songs, things like that. So it's, you know, it's... um, his conceptual cousin, I guess, is 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 Goodnight Saigon, which sure. was written, you know, based on the stories that his friends told him coming in, uh, coming back from Vietnam, and you know, he didn't want to write that one originally. He didn't think he was, you know, had the had the right to do it because he didn't go over there, and his friends were like, "Well, no, you're the storyteller, you know, right? That's yeah. your function. You know, that's what you're going to do. You're our mouthpiece. And, and he did a you great know, we want to tell you. Yeah, exactly." Yeah, um, and you know maybe that was a little easier for him because it was his peer group that was there. Um, not that he didn't make a good effort with this one, but you know, it, uh, you know, people said it sounded a little like In Bloom by Nirvana. He did. He did get Cass Dillon he did get a very uh, younger singer yep. to to perform it. We came to bring these people freedom.
1: We came to fight the infant death. There
0: is no justice in the desert. Because there is no God in hell. At least goes to show you that Billy knew his limitations. At least he had something to say, but you know yeah. he didn't have to get out there and try to put the spotlight on himself to do it. I feel like musically he was going for my ears, he was going a little Led Zeppelin.
1: Um, you know, like yeah. a ca- like a cashmere or something like that. Uh that's mm. kind of where I went with it. And Billy is in his either fifties or sixties or whatnot. And, you know, he felt like his voice wasn't the right voice, like he said for it. And so he wanted it to be told by somebody who would be the age of a soldier. Um, mm-hmm. but Billy did have a released version of it, but it was only in Australia. I've never tracked one down, but there's a CD single version of Billy doing a live version of Christmas in Volusia. And I believe it was only released in Australia. And that was the only version of it that he cut. Or yeah, released and you from.
0: know, uh, so I'll, I'll say this real quick. Um, you know just just sort of for reference there's a song called letters from iraq by the bouncing souls which came out around the same time and uh i think they had literally taken things um and you know obviously presented them as such but took took things almost like word for word from uh one guy who would write them from iraq but you know again um you know speaking to to the uh the medium of the times this song uh i would say came to prominence for most people because there was a video up on on YouTube that started making the rounds and this was probably the beginning of you know when you would start getting your your entertainment news at least from either social media or a website or something It would be like oh Billy debuted this new song uh, with this guest singer at at his show last night you know and it was you know you know, all of a sudden there was a video out of it, and you weren't reading about it maybe a week later, and and wondering what it sounded like. I remember I remember sitting at work and and clicking on it, you know, and putting yeah. my ear up to the to my computer speaker and giving it a listen, that kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah, interesting. I, I yeah. I'll have to check that out.
0: Yeah, it was a yeah. They, I re, I remember watching. He's like, I, he's, I'm going to bring out the I'm going to bring somebody out, and Cass Dillon walks out, kind of like you know, nods to the audience, and, and he's playing guitar, and he just goes into it. Yeah, almost positive it was Nassau Coliseum yeah i think that would make the most sense that makes sense because i think
1: Cass was new yorker so from here we're gonna dive into a couple remixes alternate mixes and things like that there's Mm -hmm. some interesting stuff going on here as well uh i think first we're gonna dig into alternate mixes uh and the first one on the list is uh new york state of mind
0: and this is uh this is a tricky one the uh, the only difference is the saxophone solo is completely different take is it the same player I always forget. It's a
1: it's a totally different player, and I don't even know who did the second version. I know the first version, the original Turnstile's recording of it was Richie Cannata on saxophone. Yeah, and Richie played in Billy's band from 1976 through 1981. For some odd reason, they recut the solo. Um, I'm not sure who the sax player is the second time around. Um, but I don't believe it's Richie. And for some reason, the yeah, they cut an
0: additional version of it. It wasn't Phil Woods, was it? I think there's been rumor. Of that, but um,
1: I think because I think Phil Woods played the sax solo on Just The Way You Are. Right. Uh, um, mm-hmm. So I think that might be where some of the confusion comes along. But mm. uh, I'd heard some, you know, I've seen some online rumors that it was him on New York State of Mind. But I've also seen just as many refuting that, saying that that wasn't him at all.
0: I wonder if it was one of those things. um I think Zappa tried to try to make this argument for some of his god awful 80s remixes but he said the uh, the original tapes were damaged or something so he we went back and re-recorded stuff but i wonder if uh there was a problem with the master when they were trying to redo it
1: i don't know what the motivation was cuz uh i love Richie's version of it i think his works so well for the song that I, I there was no need to recut it
0: so i don't know why they did yeah someday we'll get to the bottom of that one.
1: And then the other one, which we've uh, we've talked about a little bit uh, on previous episodes, was sometimes a fantasy. Now the the album version fades out does a pretty quick fade out after the last chorus and goes into the outro of you know it's just a fantasy all that and then it it fades out just as the band's really starting to pick up steam and the guitars are starting to go a little crazy it ducks Mm -hmm. out on the uh, album version and it's like between three and four minutes and uh Mm -hmm. on the single version the seven inch vinyl single version so they continue this ending jam that's the (laughs) only thing different that i can discern is it's just basically not faded out. It's just the out. full they just thing. Let yeah. it roll.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I um. It was funny a couple of weeks ago. My buddy Norm came over uh to listen to some records, and he, he actually brought me over. He brought me over that copy of the Hassles that I that I um. I took the picture of and sent to Oh yeah. My my, my friend Norm's a, like a. He's a guy that just picks up records wherever he goes, and he found uh a copy of the hassles in the thrift shop for like 50 cents but like it was all messed up on the inside he was like ah, i paid a dollar i probably paid too much because it's messed up i'm like it's still a collector's item yeah, yeah. for sure so we were going you we were going back and forth playing some records i'm like norm you know this song he's like yeah if he's an older dude and i and i said i bet you never heard this version before And he was he was like in shock <laughs> he was like what's going on here i'm like this was the single man Yep. you know, this is apparently what they sent to, to to radio stations.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what I'll, that's the one thing that always baffled me about this. It's like because typically, as and we'll get into later with radio edits, typically the radio versions were quite shorter. Yeah. Um So to take a, a song that was already pushing three and a half minutes or so, and to you know let the outro continue for another forty seconds or whatnot, that was. Super puzzling. I mean, I loved it because it was totally different. But yeah, I have no, you know, it's bizarre to me why that was the radio version.
0: Yeah, yeah. Went longer and came to a crashing, ridiculous halt, too. Yep. You know, all right. So we we all know he, you know, they cut down Piano Man. We all know he bitched about it in the Entertainer. You think this was the final screw you back? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, you're my like, like, singles. Well,
1: we're gonna extend one.
0: <laughs> yeah, now look, now look what I can do. Go ahead, don't play this. There right. you. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe that's
0: certainly possible. <laughs>
1: The other one, I I, I think i got to send it to you. I don't know if you've heard this one, but there's an alternate mix for River of Dreams.
0: No, I haven't heard this one yet. So actually. there was a
1: Greatest Hits box set that came out in the late 90s. Um, it was called the Complete Hits Collection, I think. But basically, the, it was four discs. So it was Greatest Hits 1, Greatest Hits 2, mm-hmm. and 3. And then there was a bonus disc of like some masterclass Q&A stuff, um, maybe a couple of live songs, things like that. Yeah, and one of the things on there was this alternate version of River of Dreams and what's really different about it before he goes into the last you know in the middle of the night before that mm. it goes into the melody of Lullaby hmm. so it's still River of Dreams it's still going along the, the same drum loop and yeah. production and everything A River of Dreams but then he's mm-hmm. playing the lullaby melody on the piano as it goes through this middle section and then it goes right back into River of Dreams
0: wow I... You know, as you explain it, it sounds like it makes no sense. But I'm sure it sounds better than then than I'm explaining it. it <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no slight on you. Don't get me wrong. It's just you know because, but you know, knowing how how soft and tender "Lullaby" is, yeah, and you know what what a bigger, much bigger production uh, "River of Dreams" is. It's like you know, I'm picturing like the ba 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 da do 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 do. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's so. a little more. It's a little more. um has a little
1: more bite to it. And then there's a couple of like downbeat hit drum hits and things like that. So there's a little, a little bit going on behind it you know knowing lullaby and what ended up on river of dreams now it takes you out of it because you know you're so used to a certain version of it and then right. to have this thrown into it it's it's so different i'll have to i'll have to send it to you
0: yeah yeah definitely i really want to hear that now because i'm trying to picture it yeah and now i want to see how close i can get you know <laughs> see how well how good my like mental arranging skills are. Oh, right <laughs> if, if you're close or not yeah 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 That's a, that's a deep one, man. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. W- what was that on again, you said?
1: The Complete Hits Collection. So it was, okay, yeah, it was yeah. a box set of the three Greatest Hits albums and then a bonus disc it came out like the late
0: 90s. So the next are remixes... Um...
1: So the first one yeah. that I I uh, dug up was Tell Her About It. And this is actually from the same 12-inch single that You Got Me Hummin" was on. The A-side mm-hmm. was actually a uh, like an extended remix of Tell Her About It um, that was like five and a half minutes long. Um, so it built around the original song, but just added a bunch of different like percussion and things like that. Probably for me, the most fascinating part of it is the uncut background vocals. Um, we'll play a clip of it in a minute here. But, you know, on the studio version, the background vocals are going boo-doo-doo-doo. Do, 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 do. You know, it's fairly yeah, short, yeah. but on this remix, at the end of it, they add this like do-ah to it. Huh. So, but it sounds in line with the rest of the background vocals. So to me, I think it's one thing that they recorded that they felt just didn't fit as well. So they just chopped mm-hmm. off the tail end of the background vocals for the studio version.
0: You know, there's a uh there's a there's a uh, chopped verse of that song too you can find that on youtube oh you're right you're right i forgot yeah. about that and that's interesting because it's it's not it's not completely done up so you get a little better you get a little better sense of what he's playing on it mm-hmm. because it doesn't have all the va- background vocals and extra like horns and stuff like that so it's more like the boogie woogie piano going on Listen boy
1: take love
0: So now, yeah. So those those were like club mixes. They called them, right? Because it was they were expected to be the ones you you play in like a dance club or something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Which is, you know, funny to, funny to think of now for them to, to play Billy Joel in there. But yeah, there was, you know, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I know I've picked up one or two by various artists where it's like a really long intro and it's got some like just snatches of vocals on them and percussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so you've got the guy with the, you know, with the two turntables and he's got some time to mix and he's got some time to, do, to, to layer some things in, things like that. Yeah, exactly. So are you familiar with the second remix on this one? Uh, we we got Keeping the Faith? No, this one I haven't. I, you know, I'm sure I've come across it, to be honest with you. Um, but, think... you know, if you don't get them on record, it's like you listen to them for a minute. Like, all right, all right, I got the idea. It's it's more fun when you find them on vinyl. You come home, you sit down, you got a piece of it in your hand. Agreed.
1: This was actually the single release of Keeping the Faith. Um, oh, yeah?
0: Like, so the 7-inch 45
1: of Keeping the Faith was this remix. And on the vinyl, it's called Special Mix. Huh and it's uh like i think 4 minutes 44 seconds i don't know why i have that burned in my brain but something tells me that that's how long it was um but it's yeah it has some additional musical elements added into it um i don't think it's long, much longer than the original it's pretty close yeah and that was that one was chosen for the single it was actually put out on the my lives box set later in 2005 i remember listening to it and it sounded a bit different to me but i almost feel like part of the reason that is is because up until that point the only way i heard it was on record and so you know i'd had the same copy of the 45 for 25 years or whatever and you know records will have a little scratch here and a little skip here you got used to the character of the vinyl where it was like oh it would kind of be scratchy in this one little spot or there'd be a little distortion over here or it would skip at this verse so like that was the version i was used to like totally not clean and then Hmm. to hear like a pristine, clean studio version, it sounded so weird to me.
0: Right, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and to find out it was a remix too. <laughs> right,
1: exactly. I would not be here now if I never had the hope I'm not ashamed to say the wild So that's that's about it for this one. I know yeah. we've been we've been going for a bit, but you know, the more we started digging into it, the more we found just a lot a lot of songs that either got B sides or radio edits, remixes. There's just there was a lot to unpack here. And uh, you know, we'd love yeah. to hear what some of your favorites are uh on, on this. You know, do you have any B sides or, or rare tracks that you love or are there any, any that you hate? I'm always curious as to what people are gravitate towards and what they do and don't like. So you know, let us know. You can know uh, you know you can connect with us pretty much anywhere these days you know we're on all the socials facebook twitter instagram so if you just search glass houses billy joel podcast you'll find us at any of those spots and then we've also got email we've got glasshouses at gmail.com and we've got a uh, the website glasshousespod.com. So we so we're all over the place and we've been getting some great yeah. emails lately and uh, you know we just love hearing from you guys so
0: please reach out to us anytime we'd love to connect this is this is great fun, but you know when we put these together, it's a little isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great to put them out into the world and and get that response and, and see how uh, other people are connecting to it as well. I mean, you know, Michael and I met um, uh, through the Billy Joe Retold Facebook page. You know, and yep. it's just it's great to to step into a community like that and find some like-minded people and. Uh, Absolutely, do it up, yeah. So
1: this has been a lot of fun, and we're so glad you guys are on the ride with us. Uh, you know, when we started doing this a couple, three months back, there's that nervousness of like, this is going into the wind. Is anybody gonna connect with it or gonna relate to it? And you know, the response so far has been incredible, and we can't thank you enough for for listening and sending those emails and Facebook notes and things like that. It means a lot that you guys are into it as much as we are, and. You know, we're in this for the long haul. So as long as you're on board listening, we're going to keep doing this. So, uh, you know, we welcome your ideas and suggestions. And, you know, you guys are a part of this as well. So, you know, it really means a lot.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: So reach out to us anytime and we'll be back in a couple more weeks here with the next episode. So until then, we will talk to you soon.
0: Wow.